Um, we went through the Ten Commandments, and this morning, we're going to do that again. I'm going to back up, and we're going to go through it again before we move on here, okay? And so why don't we just uh, open, open in prayer as we come to the Word of God. Lord, I just thank you for your Word this morning. I, I thank you, Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling amongst us. And Jesus, we recognize that You are the living Word. And it's for that reason that we love the written Word. Because the written Word points us to Jesus, the living Word. And Jesus, we want in all things this morning, Lord, just my heart, the heart of each one here, I trust, is that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted, that it would be evident and it would be clear that there's uh, no one but Jesus who can save, that there's no name greater than the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, this morning we, uh, we just come before you. We pray, God, that as uh, we work through this text and wrestle it through that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give witness to the person of Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would empower, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see the things uh, of God and reveal to us um, about sin and righteousness and the judgment that's to come and, and to just draw us to Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time, Lord. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know Jesus better, that we might know our Father who is in heaven better. In your name, Lord. Amen. Right on, it says this in Exodus chapter 20, verse uh, 1, at Mount Sinai, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, if... If you were here last week, we spent a lot of time on the Ten Commandments. We didn't get past them. This morning, I want to look at them again and then move beyond to the next part of the story. But I think that it's really important that we go through them because they set the groundwork for what God does after he delivers uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, so first comes the law. And then the Lord instructs regarding the altar. And I made the comparison last week. It's this. It's like the mirror in the sink in your bathroom. And, and I want to tell you that illustration again because it, it, it applies and it demonstrates what's going to happen in this text. It's, it's, it's kind of like this. You know, you go into the bathroom of your home and you look in the mirror and you see that on your face is barbecue sauce or some remnants of dinner. And you think... What the heck? How come that was on my face? Like, why didn't anybody tell me that I had food on my face? And, and you begin to laugh and smile and giggle to yourself. And as you smile, you see your teeth and your teeth are full of other stuff and pepper and this and, and that. And you realize that, you know, this isn't a pretty sight. It's not beautiful. And you need to clean your face. And what the mirror does for you is the mirror reflects the mess. The, the mirror shows you what the mess is, but you can't wash your face with the mirror. So then you need the sink. You turn on the tap and you wash, the, you wash your face and you clean up uh, the mess. Now the Apostle James said this. He said the law of God is like that uh, mirror. It reveals the mess of the man. It reveals his sin. 
So then what you need is an altar. You need a place where you can get washed and cleansed and clean. And for us, you know, as followers of Jesus Christ, we know that ultimately the sink, the altar is Calvary and that which was accomplished on the cross by Jesus Christ. We're not washed with water. We're washed with blood, the word of God tells us. To cleanse us and purify us of our sins. And so as we go through these Ten Commandments, what I want you to keep in mind is this, is that these Ten Commandments express the mind of God uh, relative to what uh, man ought to be. What is perfection? What is the standard in terms of the nature and the character of God? And we're going to see as we go through this, as we look in the mirror, whoa, I'm a mess. My heart is a mess. I need a savior. I need a sink. I need to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, when we think of the law, we think of it, sometimes we think of it in this sense. The law is something to be obeyed. But Jesus said that's not the case. The law is something that's to be fulfilled in us. We do that by obeying it. Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So let's go through these 10 commandments again. The first one is this, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, first commandment. And it's God making an exclusive claim on his people, but on all people. You shall have no other gods before me. It's a monotheistic claim that there's one God. He's saying, I made you. I created you. I know what will make you happy. Now there are other gods. There's little G gods, lowercase gods. People serve all sorts of things. People worship pleasure. People worship sensuality. People worship money. People worship sex. People worship possessions. People worship other people. They worship all sorts of things. There are many uh, gods, but the Lord makes an exclusive claim. You shall have no other gods before me, a monotheistic claim. And Jesus repeated that expression from God when he said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so last week we spent lots of time on this, that the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Father said, this is my son, listen to him. Uh, Do what he says. So when we listen to Jesus, we fulfill the first commandment. In worshiping Jesus, we are worshiping the one true God who has freed us from captivity to And slavery to sin and death. The second commandment is this. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. Or that is in earth beneath. Or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the the second command is this. We are not to fashion or form with our hands anything that's trying to express the image of God. We're not to make an image of God, but God himself has made an image of himself. And it's this. The word of God actually teaches us that you and I are made in the image of God. And that's a mysterious thing. 
You know, we, we're three-part beings, you know, mind, body, spirit, uh, like God is. But, you know, there's some mystery to what that means, to be made in the image of God. I would say this, when you can't understand it, just realize that it's more to do with the spirit than the body. See, the, tr- the true understanding, I would say, of, of this commandment comes again when we look at Jesus Christ. Because Jesus... Uh, holy and fully is the image of God. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being, the image of God. And so if you ever wonder yourself, I wonder what God is like. The answer is this, look at Jesus Christ. He's the exact representation of God. And we ourselves, as those who are made in the image of God, the Bible says the best thing we can do is, is as we follow Jesus, he conforms us back into that image. We're, we are, it's, it's corrected the brokenness in there. And so Jesus fulfills the second command. Third one is this, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Third commandment. So we, you know, when we love the Lord, we're saved by the work of Jesus. We, um, we love the name of Jesus. And one thing that's very painful when you love the name of Jesus or the name of God is to have someone take the name of God and use it in vain, to turn it into a curse word, uh, to turn it into, you know, to drag the name of one that you love through uh, the mud. The name of God, of course, is an extension of his character. It's an extension of his nature. The name of God speaks of his, his presence and his revelation. And to use that name as a curse, to defame that name, uh, by making it a swear word, is to take the, the perfect and holy nature and character of God and to degrade that. You know, when Jesus came to the earth, the, the people of that time um, thought he committed blasphemy because he actually called God his father. Jesus taught us to pray, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And they said, man, to call God father, that's, that's blasphemy. That's to misuse his name. But Jesus taught us that's not actually the case. It's not that we can't speak the name or pray in the name. In fact, we are given uh, the name of Jesus to pray with in, in authority, but we're to use the name of God appropriately. And so the image of God we saw was revealed in the person of Jesus, but likewise, we've been given that name of Jesus. And last week I talked about how we got a new family name. We were given a new name, Christian. You know, they were called those early followers of Jesus. Little Christ's the family name. See, the name of Jesus fulfills all the promises and the attributes of God in the Old Testament. And so we are told, pray in the name of Jesus. Our our praise goes to, our prayer and our praise goes to a personal God who has a personal name. And he's given us that name. He's taken us into his family and our hearts are to delight in him. Fourth commandment. Verse eight. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I uh, spent a lot of time here last week talking about uh, the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week that God called the Sabbath. It, it was the day during the week of creation in which God rested because all along as God worked, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And in instituting the Sabbath, God was revealing to his creation his goodness. God was revealing um, that it's good to rest from your work. In fact, when you rest, you are acknowledging that God is good. Isaiah said uh, this, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and in rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. See, we, we yapped about this, that there's pressure in life. It comes down on us. It's heavy. Bills pile up. Rat race gets a hold of you. The enemy bears down on you. And in the midst of that, when we stop and we rest, we're acknowledging the goodness of God. We're acknowledging that all that we have is not because of our hard work or our ingenuity or our creativity or our, our smarts or energy. But we're acknowledging, God, what I have is from you and I trust you to provide for me. So I've worked, now I can rest and I'll trust that you'll take care of me. And so Sabbath is an acknowledgement that God is the, gooder of every, the giver of every good gift, that he provides the bread we enjoy, that he holds our life together, uh, you know, and so we can rest. Six days you shall labor, on the seventh day you shall rest. The New Testament expresses this commandment in a different way, not just physically, but spiritually. There's a spiritual reality to the Sabbath principle. Uh, and the New Testament tells us that Jesus is our Sabbath. Just as we can labor physically, so we can strive spiritually. But salvation isn't a paycheck. You can't earn it. It's a gift that's given and it's received. It's granted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not on the basis of our laboring. And so when Jesus takes the throne of our lives and we repent of our sin, we turn from our sin and we turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, we enter into a spiritual rest where we can stop striving spiritually and just grow in relationship with the Lord. The work's done because Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross and he said, it is finished. Rest in me now when you come in faith. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, our labors come to an end. Jesus is our Sabbath. Now the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God has given you. Uh, the one commandment that's got a blessing attached to it, when you honor your mother and your father, God will bless you. You know, the value that people place on the family affects culture, affects the way, you know, societies and communities and, um, you know, come together and work. But, you know, when we come to Jesus, Jesus said and taught that we're brought into a new family. We've been given that new name in him. We've been got the new family name. You know, and Jesus identified that... Uh, True family is not through 
the blood of physical descent, but true family, our true family is identified by his blood that was shed on the cross. That that is our common denominator that brings us into his spiritual family. The blood that he shed on the cross. In the Lord, you know, we're the church. We're one body, one family. And, you know, taking this command... We see that, you know, in the body of Christ, we're we're to honor one another above ourselves, Paul said. We don't use our, our freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Rather, we serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in this one commandment, Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so we learn to do that in submission to Christ. We learn to serve and submit to one another. And there's, there's a need for order in a family. And order in the church requires that that happens. Sixth commandment is this, verse 13. You shall not murder. You know that Jesus took this and he said, man, let's, let's not look at the outward fruit of the act of murder, but let's talk about the heart because that's where it starts. And he says, I tell you, if you're angry at your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You, 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 you'll be judged based on the anger in, in your heart. It's rooted there. Murders rooted in the heart. And Jesus provided the life that can rescue us from our murderous selves. He, he shed his lifeblood on the cross to give us eternal life through his death. Seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery. Again, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus deepened the meaning of this. And Jesus did not set aside the law, but he... He transformed it and he expanded the depth and the scope of this command. And he said, you, you've heard that it has been said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus says, let's get beyond the outward action and look at what is at the root of it. It's something that is in the heart. And when you consider this command, you, you know, only, only Jesus kept this pure. He kept it. He honored God even in his heart. I can't say that. This is why, you know, Jesus was harsh in his discussion about this, but he was very gentle when he, when he dealt with people who were in sin. He called them out of it. He forgave them and he called them out of it. And, you know, I, I would say, know the danger of your heart. Don't trust your heart. You know, in our world and in our society, we say, well, follow your heart. The heart is wicked and deceitful. That's what Jesus says. The heart is where murder comes from, anger. The heart is where adultery comes from, lust. Don't follow your heart. Follow the word of God. Follow the word of God. He said, he said this in verse 15. The audible voice of God speaking to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. You shall not steal. The eighth commandment. Pretty straightforward, right? And last week we talked about the little stuff, you know, stealing Hot Wheels when you're a kid. To the big stuff. Past the child's play stuff, you know. Do you, do you rob your employer of time? Do you cheat on your taxes? You know, do you take items from work? You shall not steal. Do you steal from God? You know, the prophet Malachi said without any question that the Lord spoke to his people and said that when they failed to pay the tithe, they were robbing God. And so, you know, when it comes to stealing, again, stealing is an issue of the heart. And Jesus said this. uh, 
In Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up treasure for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus took this command and he transformed it and he, and he said, this is about what your heart treasures. What do you treasure? Uh, what, what do you treasure? There your heart will be also. And if you have a, an issue with stealing, it reveals your heart's not in heaven. See, the opposite of stealing is to be a giver, to be full of generosity towards God, towards people, towards the things of the kingdom. Paul the Apostle said, a man should stop stealing, he should learn to work. And, you know, we addressed this last week that, that there's this very false idea that work is punishment from God. But work is not. Work is protection from God. The Lord gave Adam work so that he wouldn't keep going to the tree eating apples. And your hands are idle. You need something to do, man. You go work so that you don't get yourself caught in sin. Go, go get busy. Go find something to do. Learn to work hard. The next command is verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You know, the Bible. So I'm going to kind of slow down a little bit on these last two commands before we move on. Because we didn't spend a lot of time on them last week. The, the Bible records plenty of stories where people were false witnesses. You know, there's a story of uh, uh, King Ahab. And he had his sights set on this piece of property that he wanted. And he went to the man. His name was Naboth, and he said, I want your property. It was a vineyard. I'm going to flatten it, man. I'm going to bring in the machines. I'm going to level it out here, put a nice garden in for myself. And Naboth said, hey, man, this is my family inheritance. This is my inheritance in the Lord. The Lord gave this to my family. It's from my father and my grandfather and his father, and it's going to go to my children and my grandchildren. I'm not selling you my inheritance in the Lord. And so King Ahab, his, his wife Jezebel began to scheme and she found two dishonest men and she paid them money and they went before community leaders and they lied about Naboth and they said that he, he blasphemed against God and said things against God. And so the community took him, uh, following the law of God, and they stoned him to death for what he had done. And the old king there went and he, he took the land. And, you know, later on the Bible tells us... Uh, God, God uh, evened, evened the playing field again, leveled it out. You know, men, so false witness. Men brought false witness against Jesus, didn't they? You know, when he was arrested, they found again men, and they talked him into lying about, well, we heard him say that he's going to tear down the temple, and we heard him say this, and we, false testimony against the Lord. And, and it says here, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. See, you're a witness. You are a witness for Jesus. The question is this, are you a good witness or are you a bad witness? You're always a witness every, all the time. You are witnessing and you are testifying to the God that you serve. Talked about Peter, who, uh, you know, on the night, that Jesus was betrayed around that fire and in front of a little girl when he was confronted. You're one of those Jesus followers. G Peter, Peter, 
failed to give good witness. I, I don't know him. I don't know the man. I'm not, I'm not counted amongst him. Look, you shall not bear false witness. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit and by sending the Spirit, uh, his followers would be clothed with power from on high, that the Holy Spirit would be a gift. And when he comes upon us, we are to go in power and to be witnesses to the person of Jesus Christ. We, we need to be good witnesses for Jesus. And for that, we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, the last commandment, number 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You know what? I was at the ferry terminal yesterday. We were going up to Whistler and I was coveting. I went with a whole bunch of people. We were standing around this robin egg, you know, uh, blue Lamborghini. Looking at this saying, oh, this is awesome. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his Lamborghini. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey. That's Old Testament for Lamborghini. Or, or anything that is your neighbor's. So, you know, this, this, this one is really, an, an, you know, the final nail in the coffin when you go through the Ten Commandments because who doesn't covet what other people have? You know, we, we covet, the Bible says, because we want what we don't have. And this is, a, this is a heart commandment because it's about desire again. The Lord's saying, let's get, let's get past all this. Let's get to what's going on in your heart. This is about your desires. You know, you think in our culture, you know, commercialism and the materialistic world that we live in in, in North America and all the money and the wealth that we have plays on our en the envy of our hearts. On the covetous nature. Look at if there's anybody who fails in regards to this command, it's us people in Canada. Wanting, we have so much, and yet we want what we do not have. And it's not that desire is wrong. It's just the question of what we desire. What do we desire? And Jesus said this when he was, you know, and it tackles the issue of coveting. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and I will give you everything else as well. You're worried about money. You're worried about clothes. You're worried about houses. Look at, seek me first and I'll look after you. I feed the birds of the air. I clothe the flowers of the field and I will give you everything as well. And so, you know, when we're in this place of coveting, what it reveals is that we're seeking other things besides the kingdom. That other things have taken priority over Jesus. And so if you were to take all these Ten Commandments and just wrap them up in a nice little bow, Jesus did that, and what did he say? All the law and the prophets can be summed up in this command. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's our look in the mirror. I don't know about you, but I, just, I could go through that list and I go, man, fail, 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 fail. Good thing it's not, there's no diploma here. Failure. But what we see next in the visit is this, that God, remember God is on Mount Sinai. He has come down. The people are encamped at the foot of the mountain. It's an incredible 
seen. And as God is verbally communicating these things, we talked about this lots last week. This is an audible voice that all of the people of Israel are hearing from God. Uh, Moses records for us that the people quickly realized that they were unable to deal with God on the basis of these 10 commandments. Just like you and I. We can't deal with God on the basis of these rules. On, on the basis of this, these commandments. These moral laws that God had presented uh, the people with had, had a high standard. And we recognize as they did that, that as they were delivered to them with an audible voice from heaven, their ears heard, the Bible says. And the standard was perfection because the law of God is right. The law of God is fully trustworthy. The law of God is perfect and it demands perfection. And if we were to try and keep these 10 commandments for our salvation, you'd have to be perfect. You would have to be perfect in the vertical relationship with God and you'd have to be perfect in your horizontal relationships with people. You'd have to be absolutely perfect. See, the Israelites were, like you and I, being called to be a people of the word, to live in obedience to the laws and commands of God and their success depended on hearing the word, believing it, and obeying it. Now look what happens as they're digesting this in their minds and in their hearts. Verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they stood far off. See, just like a mirror reflects a man's face, so the Ten Commandments uh, uh, reflect God and reveal the hearts of people. And as they looked into the mirror by hearing this voice, they were gripped with fear. They saw into their own hearts and they realized their shortcoming. They recognized their failure. They saw their sin. And the Bible says that sin is death and death brings fear. They looked with their eyes at that mountain and they saw the physical evidence of God's presence. God was present and they were afraid. They trembled. Now, you know, if the story ended here, it would be really tragic, wouldn't it? Just that's it. That's the end. All over. Tragic. What a tragedy. God wanted perfection. They couldn't do it. It's all over. What a tragedy. What an awful ending to the story. But if that was the ending, did you know that God would be just? He would be righteous in his action for the story to end right there. Yeah, that's right. You should be afraid. Do you not know who I am? It's done. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. My friends, if that is the end of the story... What a tragedy. But there is a story of grace that we are about to read in this Mount Sinai account. An allusion to the grace that comes through Jesus Christ through the cross. His sacrifice. See, God planned provision for the people's failure. What, what an awesome thing. to You know, you say, man, I failed you, God. I want to tell you something. God planned provision for your failure. And praise God, there is, provi- there is provision for our failure in Jesus Christ 
through the cross and through the redemptive work of the cross. Look at verse 19. This is the people speaking to Moses. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Verse 21, the people stood far off. You see, this is a broken relationship. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, the first request of the people as they stood off might seem like a bad thing. They said, we don't want to talk to God. This is terrifying to us. Please, you go and you talk to God. Uh, they said, we're, we're, we're afraid. So best case scenario for us is this. We need a mediator. We need someone to be the go-between. So Moses, you go and you go be the go-between. You talk to God and we'll talk to you and we'll talk to you and you go talk to God. On our, so be, be our mediator. See, we have to understand here that, that this is a covenant relationship. A relationship governed by these 10 laws, these 10 rules, these 10 commandments that reflect God. You got, you got two parties here. Remember I said last week this, that we make the mistake when we think, okay, there's two tablets with 10 commandments and there's five on one and there's five on the other. It wasn't that way. 10 commandments on this tablet, 10 commandments on this tablet because it was a contract. This is your copy. This is my copy. You can hold them in trust. I will act according to you on the basis of these laws. You will act to me on the basis of these laws. Two parties, but one party, the people, were unable to live up to their end of the deal. They failed. And so say, oh man, get us a lawyer, man. We need a mediator. We broke the contract. And from their point of view, mediation would solve the shortcoming on their part. But I would say this, from God's point of view, from their point of view, they believe mediation would fix the issue. But from God's point of view, as the lawgiver, as the one who is holy and righteous, the transgression against his law could not be dealt with simply through a human mediation plan. You know, the, you know just like, there's no, gonna be, there's no binding arbitration here. Sin against the law of God must be paid for. Sin must be redeemed. Sin must have atonement. There must be satisfaction to meet the demand of divine justice. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 18, you can flash it up there, Calvin. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses recounts some details that we don't read here in Exodus chapter 20. Next one, buddy. Moses tells us that the Lord agreed with the request of the people. When they stood back and they said, man, we need a mediator. You go, Moses. God says, okay. You know what? That's a good idea. Yeah, we'll do that. But as the Lord said that, he said this, but here's the deal on mediation. I'm going to raise up a prophet. In, he'll be in the pattern of Moses, but I'm going to put in his words in his mouth, the words of God. He's going to be the ultimate mediator. And he's not going to be of your choosing, but he's going to be of my sending. You see the difference? You're not going to choose the mediator. I'm going to send a mediator. He said this, Deuteronomy chapter 18 through 17. It's on the screen. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. 
I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Bible tells us he was born in a stable amongst the mess of, of life, that there was no room for him in the inn, that he was given the name Jesus because he was going to be a mediator. He'd save his people from their sins. His earthly father, Joseph, was warned in a dream that King Herod was going to try to kill him. So he, he took Mary and, and they went and spent some time in Egypt where they would be safe. And the Bible says that when Herod passed away, the Lord spoke to Moses and, uh, sorry, to Joseph, and they came back from Egypt and that the word of God was fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. See, we have witnessed the giving of the law here in this chapter. It's, it's the mirror that reflects the character and the nature of God and reveals the failure of man to meet God's standard for perfection. But now God's going to bring us to the sink. He's going to give the instructions on the altar. You have the mirror, but you can't be made clean by the mirror. The mirror simply reflects the man. You know, I might even ask you this. What do you see when you look in the mirror of the law? What does the law tell you about your heart? What does it tell you about the actions of your life? You know what I need? I need a sink to wash me. I know you need it too. We need a means to create in us a clean heart. You know, when King David was brought the word of God and he was confronted in regards to his sin, he'd gotten involved with a married woman. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He got her pregnant. In an attempt to cover it up, he, he murdered her husband. And he thought that he did it all under the radar. And the Lord sent him a prophet with the word of God. And the word of God came to him. And the heart, David saw his heart for the first time. He thought he'd covered it. Oh. And he wrote in Psalm 51, he said, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. R restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God, I, I can't fix my heart. I acknowledge my sin before you. I need you to create in me a clean heart. And the equivalent uh, to the mirror and the sink in your bathroom is this, the law and the altar. We need the sink. That's why I called this message when the law, the law, law heated, altar needed. What's an altar? You know, an altar is... Um, just a structure upon which people bring offerings such as sacrifices, you know, for religious purposes. The altar functions for this, for worship, but to make restitution. Uh, for atonement of sin. They would sacrifice animals and blood would be shed to make atonement for rules and laws that were broken. You know, when we read about the Garden of Eden in the first part of Genesis... There's no altar. There's no mention of any altar because man in his innocent nature created in the image of God did not need an altar because he walked with God and he talked with God and they were in the garden of Eden with God. There was no sin to be atoned for. 
They walked around naked and there was no sense of shame. There was no fear of God when you came into his presence or when he came down from heaven and walked into the garden with you. There was no fear, no shame. Sin made the altar necessary. And the law makes us realize that man is a sinner. It brings to light our, the inability of each one of us to live the moral life. It reveals our need for a savior. Now look at verse 22 with me. Exodus chapter 20. And the Lord said to Moses, you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen from yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Man, if you got a, a pen in your hand, underline from heaven. Okay. Verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver, to be with me, nor shall you make gods of gold. Interesting to me that the Lord says, I talk to you from heaven. And we talked about this as we've been coming through uh, this Exodus account. Heaven came down to Mount Sinai. It's a, it's a crazy concept. We think, okay, well, the people went to Mount Sinai and they went up to God. No. God came, he, because God came down and heaven was on the top of Mount Sinai and God was present there. There was a barrier of fire in between. Picture of Jesus, I believe. Moses would cross through and he would talk to God in heaven and he would come back down the mountain. Heaven came down. And that just reminds me something that I think is very encouraging. See, you know, God's expectation for you and I has never been this. You should ascend. You should climb the ladder. You should go up the steps. See, whether it was the Garden of Eden or Mount Sinai or the incarnation of Jesus Christ, man never ascends to the plane of God. Rather, God always in his love comes down from heaven to earth. You know, we sing that song here. I love it. Heaven, uh, King of heaven, come down. On Mount Sinai, heaven came down. And the Lord said, I came down. You know what Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says to us? It also tells us that heaven came down. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of servant, of a servant, and he was born in the likeness of men because heaven came down. The word became flesh. Jesus came and dwelt among us. Now with this comment, the Lord says, don't make gods of silver or of gold to put alongside of me. That's forbidden. I have unrivaled uh, supremacy in your life. That's what I'm to have. I've come down. I'm to have unrivaled supremacy. Just like Jesus said, you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God. Now verse 24 says, instructions on the altar. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. Okay, you're gonna make atonement. We're gonna, we're gonna have restitution here. Okay, it's an earthen altar. There you will sacrifice your sheep and your oxen. The verse continues, in, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. See, there it is. The law is heated, an altar is needed. See, when we really hear the law of God, 
We realize we're sinners in need of a a sacrifice uh, to take away our lawlessness, our failure, our sin. And we should notice, what I want to point out to you as we come through this is this. A couple more verses here. The extreme simplicity with which God directs his people. Especially when you think of it in contrast to gods of gold and silver. God says, make it of earth. Not silver, not gold. I want it of earth. When you offer those sacrifices, he says, and my name is remembered, two things will happen. I will come to you and I will bless you. What a thought. What an incredible thought, my friends, for people that have broken the law of God. He said, when you come to me and you remember my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. That's grace. That is undeserved favor for people that have broken his law because a sacrifice was made. A sacrifice was made on the cross. And when we come to God through the person of Jesus and we remember his name, God comes to us and he blesses us. It's beautiful. The Lord gives him another instruction, verse 25. He says, if you make it of stone, Okay, let's say it's not of earth. Let's say you make it of stone. You shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield a tool on it, you will profane it. So again, simplicity in the worship. Simplicity in the act of building an altar. I want you to make it out of stone, but it's not to be ornate. Don't decorate it. Don't don't put a tool to it. Because the reason is this. The the second a man puts a tool to the stone, he he pollutes the altar. Why? Because what happens is is the, the focus moves from making it pretty. The focus moves from the sacrifice to the altar. God says that I want the the focus is on the sacrifice, not the physical altar. And I want Let me tell you about a sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We don't worship a cross, my friends. We worship the sacrifice that was made on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. And see, often the further people move from and stray from real true relationship with God, the greater their tendency is to build ornate altars, decorate their churches, you know, do whatever they do. You know, men... I would say glorifies himself in the work of his hands, right? Dudes are like that. You know, you hang out with a dude and you work. I'll tell you what guys like to do at the end of the day. They stand back and they go, sweet man. And they observe their work. You watch a man. It's good. It's healthy for him. He's supposed to do that. He glorifies in the work of his hands. And he says, that's beautiful, man. I knew what I was doing. Sweet. Okay. Man glorifies himself in the work of his hands, but the Bible says that God will not let any flesh glory in his presence. And so when the spirit of God is not moving, you know, the tendency is this, is that the artisans and the architects try to create a feeling to mask the lack of the presence of God, to mask that God's spirit is not moving. And the heart of God is, is not ornate decoration, The heart of God is simplicity in worship. (laughs) Me too. No, just kidding. 
The heart of the father is that the focus would not be on the altar, but on what is accomplished on the altar. And like I said, we don't worship the cross. We worship Jesus who hung on the cross, who died and who was buried and who was raised again to life and who ascended into heaven and who's returning very soon. Simplicity in the worship. And I would tell you this, you know, God still rejects the efforts of natural men to gain and win his favor. Look at your efforts to gain God's favor or a waste of time. My friends, if Jesus Christ is your savior, you have the favor of God. If Jesus Christ is your savior, you have the favor of God and it's not something that you strive for. It's something that you begin to enter into by faith. Say, thank you, God. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to rest. Jesus is my salvation. I'm going to rest in that name. (laughs) And what God demands of us is that we would recognize as we look in the mirror, is that that we would recognize our poverty without him, without that mediator, without him sending Jesus. That we would come to him and say, man, Lord, without Jesus, I'm lost. I am I am blind, I am sinful, I am dead in my sin, and you, Jesus, are my only good. You're my only hope. Maybe think of forget Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know. Jesus is your only hope. Verse 26. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness not be exposed on it. What's the Lord saying? He say this, keep grounded, man. See that? That's how you, just simply, keep grounded before me. You know, not only was there to be simplicity in the worship, but this tells us that there was to be humility. You know, Jesus um, told a parable of, of some men who trusted in themselves. They, they, they trusted that they themselves were righteous and they looked on other people with contempt. And Jesus said this, let me read it to you. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went away down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, nakedness, speaks of that which God cannot use. It speaks of the work of the flesh. God cannot use the work of the flesh. Anything, in a, even in our religious practice, that encourages the sensual instead of the spiritual cannot come from God or be used of God. The worship that God honors is, is not a set of, you know, stairs. Not, not 12 steps by where we climb higher and higher. There's one step. It's the turn of Jesus Christ. There's one step. And so the focus um, 
is to be on the sacrifice, not the structure. Keep the worship humble. See, when you add steps to the altar, it means steps are a, a human creation, a con- contrivance. It's like you're, you're going to climb up to God. Remember we said heaven must come down. Before God, we must take our place in the dust. Dust to dust. Out of the dust, God created, man. You know, and, and it makes me, heaven must come down. It reminds me again of that Philippians chapter two that says this, of Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not, and, it, and the Bible says we're to have this mind. He did not, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, there are no steps for a person to climb. In fact, when a man tries to climb the steps to God, he just exposes his own nakedness. You know, even when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they partook of the apple and they realized, oh man, we're naked. Get some, take some fig leaves, sew together their, their little thing. Um, when the Lord came looking for, for them, God knew they were naked. Because he knows the innermost secrets of the heart. Their attempts to cover up didn't work. And when you make efforts to climb, it just exposes your shame. I was thinking about that. Thinking about all the ways that people are religious They serve this God. They serve this God. They're involved in this religious practice and this religious practice. And I thought, oh, it just exposes the shame. That's all they're doing in their attempts to climb. Their shame is being seen and they don't even realize it. They need Jesus. God, in his grace, built a provision for my failure. God in his grace built a provision for your failure. He sent a mediator, not of our choosing, but of his sending. And our savior, Jesus Christ, appeared and he saved us, not according to the works done by our righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He offered himself on the altar of the cross as a sacrifice for sin. He gave his life for a sacrifice. He died and he was buried. And the Bible says that he rose again and he ascended into heaven. And that the day is coming when he will return again. And his resurrection and his ascension are proof that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. The once for all sacrifice to meet the needs of all of mankind for the guilt of their sin of breaking the law of God. You know, Paul said this. He said, okay, how do I wrap it up for me personally? Paul said it this way. Do I I climb the steps? Yeah, do I make it ornate? Is it gold? Is it silver? How should I do it? Paul said it this way. Listen to this. It's so beautiful. He said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Wow, no steps, no gold, no silver, no games, no gimmicks. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. 
See, God was always with the law, trying to get to the heart of the matter. And Paul said, it's with the heart that we believe. It, 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 the heart condemns us, but it's also with the heart that we believe and are justified. And it's with the mouth that we confess and are saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, there's law. There's a mirror, but there's a sink. There is an altar. And there was a sacrifice on that altar for each one of us. And his name is Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord.